Hey, this is JJ Burden, former NFL wide receiver, now keynote and motivational speaker. You're listening to Relationships and Revenue Podcast. This is Relationships and Revenue, the show where real answers come from real discussions about what holds men back in their relationships at home and in business. A better bottom line at work means improving life at home. This show is all about helping you become a better entrepreneur and a better man. Welcome back, everyone, to the Relationships and Revenue podcast. I am your host, John Hewlin. As always, thrilled you decided to invest some of your most precious resource with me, and that is your... And as you heard from that introduction, I have the one and only J.J. Burden with me. J.J., how are you today? I'm doing great, John. It's good to be here, man. I'm looking forward to sharing with your audience. Well, we are thrilled to have you here. And for those of you who don't know who J.J. is, you heard a little bit about him from his introduction. But yes, J.J. is a former NFL wide receiver. He happened to play the majority of his career for my favorite team, the Kansas City Chiefs. Woo woo! Also with the Atlanta Falcons, so I can't forget his time in Atlanta. That is also very important. In addition to that, he is a speaker, he's an entrepreneur, he's a network marketer, but I would say, oh, and author, in addition to all those things, he has three other titles that I believe he holds most dear, and that would be husband, dad, and grandpa. Absolutely. That about wraps that up. <laughs> <laughs> all right, JJ, we have to talk about your time in the NFL. But there's a story behind that that I really want to get into. So believe it or not, in my research, and for those of you who pay any attention to this podcast at all, I always have my notes with me. I always do my research ahead of time. And so, JJ, I'm going to take you back to high school. Now, that may be a strain, man, but you can get there. I know you can. So when you were in high school, your football team was like the best in Oregon, correct? Correct. Okay. So... You're on there, you're on this amazing football team, and yet somehow on the best team in the state, you get no D1 offer? How is that possible? Yeah, it's true. I was the number one wide receiver in the state. I was all state, but I was 5'9", 133 pounds. So in spite of my impressive stats, Division One schools, they just wrote me off and they just said, nope, too small, can't play D1. And they pretty much ignored me. Wow. But somehow you ended up at the University of Oregon on an athletic scholarship. Tell us about that. Yeah, even though I, I saw that they recognized me as an underdog, I didn't think I was an underdog. And I knew that I could play at the next level. I was just going to have to have to create a creative way to create that opportunity. And uh, I had a really good track season. I made sure I had a track season because I felt confident I could get a D1 scholarship offer for track and field. And when I was being recruited, Every D1 school that came around, I would always say, what do you think about me playing football? And every school was like, no, you're a track guy, except for Oregon. Oregon said, you come run for us. And that second year, if you can convince the head coach to let you walk on, you have our blessing. And that's all I needed. Opportunity, a chance to do it. And that was one of the reasons why I went to Oregon. Okay. Okay. Plus, you know, it's, I would assume it's the biggest university in the state of Oregon. Yeah, there, there was that appeal, too, to stay home. Uh, a lot of the D1 athletes in Oregon at that time were always leaving the state. And then the year before, top athletes like Chris Miller, uh, Anthony Newman, these were all top prospects at high school. They all stayed and went to Oregon. 
So there was that dream to stay home. And plus, I knew Oregon was also a track powerhouse. So there was no better school to go to for track and field too. It was just my job to figure out a way to let head coach Rich Brooks just give me a shot on the football team. Okay, okay. And as they say, it worked out because you were somehow able to convince him to allow you to come on, to walk on anyway. And how was that first year at Oregon? Well, it was really interesting because, you know, after the track season, because I started watching the football practices during the spring, and that began this plan I put together to get on the football team. And after watching a couple of football practices in the stadium, I realized that I could play Division One. I. I just got to get noticed. And the next day, I go stand on the field. I'm trying to get the coach's attention. And then finally, the head coach, Rich Brooks, he sees me on the field. He comes down. He's like, Burden, you're the track kid. What are you doing out here? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, coach, I want to play. And he's like, well, we kind of already evaluated you. We think you're too small. Like, no coach, forget my size. I can play. So we invited to his office the next day and we had a 30 minute conversation, John. It was me trying to convince him, ignore my size, but I wore him down. He said, yes. And he's like, okay, you can walk on. Now, for those who don't know, walk on just means you're going to get a tryout. You're not guaranteed. But again, I just wanted to get my foot in the door and I walked into camp that fall. I might've been number 13 on the depth chart, but for me, I saw it as a challenge, John. And two weeks later, I was second string backing up two juniors. And that began my track and football career, really, because playing two sports in Oregon, that began that process. And that was the goal. I was just trying to make the team. I wasn't trying to go to the next level, but um, it was interesting how things worked out. Yes, yes. Now, as kind of a, a side note, because you didn't become a pro in track and field, you became a pro in football. Um, you were part of a national championship team there at the University of Oregon for track and field, correct? Right. That is correct. And, and John, I didn't realize, I knew Oregon had a powerhouse. They were well-respected track team, but I didn't know how good they were in that freshman year. We had multiple Olympians on that team, and uh, fortunately, I was a part of it, competing that year, and yeah, we won the national championship, um, which is why I'm inducted in the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame, because I was part of that championship team. Man, that's a big deal, being in a, uh, I don't care what Hall of Fame it is. I yeah. do not care. If you're in one, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's it's something special, because, um, you know, obviously, I had a nine-year NFL career, and everyone knows me more for that, but it was really track propelled me in college and, and high school. And that created some pretty amazing opportunities. But to this day, to be able to say I'm part of the Oregon, you know, sports hall of fame to have a, you know, a championship ring. The only ring yeah. I got nice. is track. It's not football, <laughs> it's in track and field. So it's definitely very special and something I cherish to this day. It counts. I'd, I'd be wearing it too, man. I would, <laughs> if I had one, I would wear it. No doubt about that. Okay. So. You're at the University of Oregon. You've made the football team. You're second string. So how, what was the process like working up to becoming a starter just prior to the NFL draft from 1988? Yeah, the first two years, I was second string. I was backing up some juniors, and they were seniors. And I didn't play much. I played and only caught like three balls the first year. I caught three passes the second year. And, and for me, it was just really about helping the team. How can I help the team? And I remember that sophomore to junior year, I made a huge jump, I think, in my production and my ability. I spent a lot of time training. I redshirted in track season that spring so I could really dedicate myself to football. And that's when I became a starter my junior year. And um, 
I, it's so funny because I think he was started my junior year. I broke my arm the fifth game against Nebraska. So I only played mm. five games. In my senior year, I was a starter. I severely twisted my ankle against UCLA, and I only played six games. Okay. So when you look at my college career, I had one touchdown in four years. I didn't have the prototypical NFL wide receiver stats where you'd say, oh, that guy's going to play in the league. I was still just a mystery, even to myself, not even thinking about the next level. I couldn't even stay healthy in, in college. So, yeah. Okay. So for this, um, sure what the right word would be. L let's just say you had a, an up and down college career when it came to football. Right. So what was the process like, or what did you even think? Let me back up. What were the so-called experts telling you about your prospects of being drafted for the NFL? Well, they weren't really telling me anything. Um, they didn't really see me as a prospect. It was my nope. senior year in track. Uh, the big focus, obviously, was nationals, and I'd qualified for the Olympic trials and already won Pac-10s the year before. So that was the focus. But I suddenly get a letter from the NFL Combine. And I get this letter, John, and I'm like, what is the combine? I had no idea what it was, but the combine is where they invite the top 300 um, college NFL prospects to this facility in Indianapolis and they test you and, and to see what your physical skills are like. So I get invited. I didn't know what it was, but I thought I would go just to check it out. And that's kind of when I started realizing that I was being looked at as a potential NFL wide receiver. But John, I was not convinced I could play in the NFL and I really didn't want to play in the NFL. I just thought I would just go and check this out and kind of measure my abilities against other college athletes. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, how was that experience for you? It was, man, it was the most intimidating, stressful, <laughs> pressure-packed job interview you ever experienced. Because that's what it was. And I'm there with like the top 45 wide receivers who have these amazing stats. I remember sitting at the table with Tim Brown and Sterling Sharp and all these guys who, you know, are great wide receivers. And the whole time I'm just thinking like, what am I doing there? It was just very pressure packed, but um, I don't know. I, I somehow got through it, but I really didn't think I impressed everyone as much as I thought I'd at, I had, but they all saw me as this track athlete who could actually catch the football, you know? Okay. So I wasn't, okay. I wasn't the track guy who can't catch the football. I was the track athlete who could actually catch the football. So I think I made somewhat of an impression. Okay. And correct me if I'm wrong, but at the Combine, one of the things, one of the tests that they administer is the Wonderlick. Yeah. How was that? That was the most um, interesting test I've ever taken in my life because the whole time you're taking it, you're like, what does this have to do with football? I mean, the questions were just off the wall and you're like, and you're like, huh? You know, and, and, um, and they don't usually tell the wide receiver scores. I don't know what I got. They always tell the quarterback scores. Oh yeah. But I occasionally they'll tell linemen too. Okay. Yeah. 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 But it was, it was, it, to me, it was a waste of time, but um, <laughs> it was one of the things they used to measure our intelligence and our comprehension and our ability to grasp things. Um, and I think they discontinued it. So that was, that was another one of those components where you're just like, okay, why am I doing that? Well, I, I will say this, you know, based upon what I know, I had, I got a sneak peek one time at an NFL playbook. Mm. It's been a little while ago, massive, yeah. massive book. Uh, just all the stuff you have to know just for yourself, right. let alone what all these other people are doing. And so the, the amount of intelligence mm. that it takes to learn it, to know it, but then for it to be second nature where you're not having to think about it, it's just right. part and parcel to who you are. Like, wow.
It just, yeah. it takes a while to be able to do that. And not everybody has that. Right. That's true. I mean, I, that is probably one of the things that people don't realize. You see these guys running around on the field, catching balls and hitting each other, but there's so much classroom preparation that goes into every game, every single day. You're like, you're in school and you're, you're having to learn a new language. And, and then you have to be able to understand this information enough where you're making split second decisions in the game, when they're changing plays, when you're recognizing looks with the defense. And, and you're right. I saw a lot of great athletes who went into camp, but mentally could not pick up the system and to be able to comprehend the information and make those split second decisions while under extreme pressure. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it, uh, it's pretty intense. You know, the, the, uh, the adage, and I heard this when I was younger that, you know, the, the guys, the bigger guys, the linemen who aren't as bright, mm -hmm. they put on the offensive. Uh -uh. Yeah. I don't buy it for a minute. Those guys have to know so much stuff, right? Just the stuff they got to know. In fact, I mean, I interviewed Tony Mandrich mm. on the show and you know, some of the things he shared with me well, off the record about the things that you got to know, I'm just blew me away. Yeah. I think everyone would be surprised just the amount of information we have to uh, retain going into a game and, and, and then things happen in the game. There's always change you're dealing with. And, right. and I was, I was doing a keynote for Hershey's last weekend and I was telling them how we were taught to deal with, how we dealt with change. Mm -hmm. Everybody's had to deal with change with COVID-19 and all that and how we had to deal with it. And how we went through this three-step process of, you know, you process the information, you make a decision and then you commit to it. And how, when we would, we are in the huddle. I'm in the huddle, Joe Montana gives a play and I jog to the line and I've got to process all this information. How's the guy playing me? What's the defense? You know, is there an extra guy? Is there blitz adjustment? And you figure all this out. And then all of a sudden Joe says, black razor. He's changing the play. <laughs> so within 10 seconds, you've got to be able to absorb that audible, see what he sees and then make that decision. It's just, mm -hmm. it's really just kind of mind boggling. Like you said, whether your alignment, a quarterback, a running back, we have to know so much information to perform at a high level. I, yeah, I just so much respect for what you guys put into it. I mean, leaving the physical part of it out. Yeah. You know, where you guys are the, I, I think of it like a, like a pyramid mm -hmm. when it comes to, when it comes to sports and it doesn't matter what sport you played. It right. does not matter. Mine happened to be soccer. That was my sport, but you know, everybody starts out as kids, you know, at the base level. And each level you move up, there's less and less people there. Mm -hmm. So when you get to your level playing at the NFL, you know, top, I would say probably less than 1% of people who ever played football make it. And even those who make it, the average is what? Drop two years, two years yeah. or less? Two years. Yeah, two years or less. Yep. I mean, that just, that tells you that for all the guys that are like a Tom Brady that have right. played 22 plus years, there's plenty who play a few games and then yeah. their career's over. And that could be injury. It could be whatever, but right. But yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So really, you had a nine year career. I mean, that's a great career for a whiteout. Yeah, it really is. And when you think about, you know, 1,696 men are on an active roster uh, every year and the millions of people playing the game to be a part of that. And I always tell people it's, it's hard to make it to the NFL, but it's even harder to stay there because of the competition and because of other elements you can't control in the game. Like you said, it could be an injury. It could be maybe you make too much money or less money. You don't fit the salary cap. There's things you can't control. And so it's one of the things I tried to do when I made it was 
Treat every day like it was game day. Not just Sunday, Monday through Sunday, give yeah. my best. Never give them a reason to think they can, they don't need me on the team. You know what I mean? Right, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally get it. Uh, and that's, that's great advice for anybody, no matter what you do. Right. Seriously, don't give people a reason to not have you around. Right. I get that. Okay, so you end up getting drafted by the Cleveland Browns in 1988. Well, anyone who looks at your stat sheet does not see Cleveland listed. So let everybody know what happened. How do you get drafted by Cleveland, but yet you never play for them? Yeah, so so let me take you back. So after the draft, where I was surprised I actually got drafted, I was the eighth round, 216th pick. And, and again, the focus was on finishing my track season. But the following week, I went to the Cleveland Browns rookie camp to really see what it was like. The third practice, I tore up my ACL ligament. Um, my first real major, major injury, definitely a setback, but that's kind of when the mind shifted a little bit and I realized that I can't run track. So now I need to really focus on the NFL. So that first year with the Browns, I was on injured reserve. So I was there practicing or excuse me, I was there rehabbing. I was in the weight room. I went to every practice, every meeting. Um, but I didn't have the pressure to play, which was really kind of a blessing in disguise for me because that was. The year, John, where I realized that, you know what, I can play at this level. Mm -hmm. I just got to get healthy and really focus on achieving that goal. So what's cool though, I still got credit for the year. So yeah. that works out great, especially now being retired. But um, yeah, yeah, the next year I did go through camp and they did cut me. I was one of the last guys cut. Right. And then you got picked up by the Chiefs. Well, actually, no, I got no. picked up by the Cowboys. Oh, okay. So I got cut by the, yeah, so I got cut by the Browns. I get cut by the Browns and I fly out to see Kansas City. I fly out to Detroit and then the Green Bay Packers within a four day period. I flunk all of their physicals because oh, I wow. got signed with them. Two weeks later, after two weeks of rehabbing, the Cowboys signed me to their practice. And Jimmy Johnson's first year, and Jimmy's like, hey, just let's get you healthy. We want to get you in the game this year. So I'm on the team all year. I practice every day. I don't contract. Um, but again, I wasn't worried because I knew that if I got healthy, I could play. And that's when the Chiefs called a couple months later because now I'm 100%. I'm ready to roll. And that was when I signed with the Chiefs. Okay. And what was your time like with Kansas City? Oh, man, I loved it. I mean, the five years in KC were, were definitely a highlight of my career because, you know, the Chiefs believed in me. Marty believed in me. Uh, he obviously drafted me in Cleveland. And, and when I was a free agent, I had several teams wanting to sign me, but I knew that Marty would give me the best opportunity and also knew that the Chiefs needed some speed. <laughs> they didn't have much speed That's that for year. Sure. <laughs> so, um, but the organization just embraced us and I found my niche there and we just loved it. We loved living there. It was a great um, football town. Two of our children were born there. You know, to this day, I still feel so connected to the Chiefs fans. I'm always communicating with them on um, social media. So when people ask me, what was your favorite team? Obviously, it was Casey. <laughs> Love my years with the Chiefs. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there is something about this city. And I know a lot of a lot of the professional athletes, not just Chiefs, but, you know, Royals, other teams that have lived other places, came here to play, stayed after they retired because they liked it. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have quite the um, quite the weather you have there in Scottsdale. So, <laughs> yeah, I know we. My wife and I went back and forth. We because KC was in our top five of where to live, 
But I think the weather, you know, in Arizona won it out. <laughs> well, I could I could definitely see Arizona for like the uh, winter, like yeah. late fall into winter into early spring. Definitely see that. But uh, but I've been in Arizona in the summer. Yeah, that's that's a whole different kind of hot. Now that is not Kansas City hot. No, I actually would take what you have. Yeah, what we have. I'll take that. 120 degree day that has no humidity right. over 95 and you know nearly that much humidity here so yeah yeah <laughs> i remember training camps at uh i think it was um up north we had the training camps a couple years what i can't remember what college that was, was it you guys at william jewel still oh william jewel isn't william jewels was up in uh wisconsin in liberty oh, liberty now oh it was, yeah liberty now that that's where the Chiefs had training camp until they went up to Wisconsin. Okay. And then and then they moved to St. Joe. They're still in St. Joe now. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. All right. So what I want to talk to you about now, JJ, is something that's really important. And I know that there have been a lot of professional athletes who have had a really hard time transitioning. And so talk to us about what your experience was like transitioning from being a professional football player to being an everyday guy. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is a struggle for a lot of athletes. Um, and for me, John, I had a goal early on to make sure that I wasn't going to be part of the, the statistic, you know, where some athletes, their career's over and they're kind of lost. They're not sure what to do. Some lose their money or whatever. But I was always planning for life after football because one, I didn't think I would play in the NFL. And then once I got there, I felt privileged and I, I took it every day. This is my job. And let me see if I can get one year out of this. Then it was two years and it's three and four. And then all of a sudden you're at nine years. But right around three or four, I was always planning for life after football, planning for that transition, which I tell athletes now, I say, start transitioning year one, you know, start planning for that right away. Mm -hmm. But I, I started networking with different people and different businesses because I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I didn't want to really struggle with that transition. So when I, when my career was over, I was ready to do that. And I had a couple of different options and that was really nice because I could make the decision that was the best fit for me. Um, and then also be able to, you know, continue to take care of my family. And, and in particular, I tell you, I, I networked with some doctors in, in, mm. in Overland Park, Kansas, uh, a doctor named Sid Devins. We connected really well. And as a result, I ended up owning two medical companies in Lee Summit for about 10 years. Uh, Summit Medical and Summit Rehab, just through the networking with those doctors out there, which was a really nice um, transition once my career was over. Very cool. Very cool. Now, when did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Oh, man, I think I knew that when I was little. Really? And <laughs> I was out in the neighborhood selling lemonade. You know? <laughs> I mean, I just thought that was always so cool, so powerful when you're the owner of your own business. And granted, I always thought, too, I mean, this is a way to get some freedom and time and freedom and kind of, you know, create the financial legacy you want. Um, I don't think I chose the right businesses because it really didn't work out that way. I love what I was doing, but there were some other challenges I weren't aware of, which kind of led me to what I do today as a professional speaker, as a network marketer, where I have more time and freedom. And I totally love what I do because one of the things I always wanted, John, was when my career was over, I wanted to help other people. How can I help other people excel? How can I help other people achieve their goals? And so I first went the coaching route, like a lot of athletes. I nope. coached high school. I coached, you know, track and football. I was a private coach. But what I didn't like about that was you were only limited to who you could work with. I remember when I was coaching in high school, they didn't want me coaching other kids at other high schools. You know, they didn't want, 
They wanted me to keep it all for their team. And I thought, that's not true. I just want to help whoever. So um, that's why I got out of coaching and, and then moved more towards what I do now. Cause now I can help anyone, you know, and, and that's what really I'm passionate about. Okay. So who would you say if, uh, if someone was approaching you for the very first time, didn't know very much about you. And it's like, okay, who is it that you're trying to reach? What would you say? I would really, I, I'm not trying to reach a particular demographic or male, female. Um, I'm really trying to reach anybody who is struggling to achieve goals in their life. Maybe there's a particular goal they have from a athletic state, a business, a family state. And I just, the, the principles and strategies I share, they're for everyone. Doesn't matter who they are. It's just that person who needs a little help, needs a little guidance, needs a little, you know, um, motivation or whatever to help them achieve the goal that's important to them. And I say that a lot of times because we're all driven by something different. My goals are going to be different than your goals and vice versa. And so the content I share, it's for everyone. They just have to decide where they want to apply these principles towards mm -hmm. whatever goal that they're striving for. So in a sense, when you're working with people like that, you're still coaching. It's just Right, exactly. Yes, that's, that's it. It's a different type. And what's cool about it is I can take a profession I was a part of, which we already talked about, it's very unique. It's hard to get there. Um, not to mention, and let me brag on this a little bit, in the last 35, we're still researching this, but it's about the last 35 years, there has not been an NFL player who had a longer career than me that weighed under 160 pounds. Wow. So I'm, yeah. So I'm in a very unique category, which allows me to really talk to the underdogs or talk to the ones that felt like their back is against the wall or someone didn't believe them in them or they dealt with some kind of obstacle. Mm -hmm. That has been my life. And it also was in the NFL. So a lot of my content is really kind of coming from that messaging. And I believe we all at some point, I felt like an underdog, you know? Okay. So, um, yeah. Now in your time of coaching, there's often the reasons that people state that they want to improve change. And then there's the real. Um, do you ever discover that when you first talking, first start talking to someone about that, that what they tell you at first, it ends up actually being something? Yes, often. And, and that's why it's my job to help dig, ask the right questions to see if we can get to the deep-seated why, the core. What is that deep-seated reason why you're pursuing something or doing something? Because as you said, if someone has a goal that they're trying to achieve and they're not really making a commitment to do it, they don't really understand the reason why they're doing it or that reason is not strong enough. So my job is to kind of help get to that reason. And once we establish it, now we could build something from there. And you're working with people, some are very honest and willing participants, but some aren't, you know, and that can be a challenge sometimes to get people to really open up to find that true reason why they're pursuing you know, what I tell people often, because I, I hear this with some free, uh, besides the fact that I'm a coach. Nice. And what I hear a lot from people is this idea of trying to figure out their, their purpose. Right. And they're almost always surprised at where I tell them to look for. Mm -hmm. Almost always. For, for, for me, it's about the three Ps. Pain leads to purpose, which leads to platform. And in that order, you don't get to purpose without pain. I don't care. You don't. It's not For me, the greatest source of my pain is found in this picture, mm. there's four of us. There's not five, like there should be. I've been divorced for over 12 years, JJ. Mm. And I'll tell you that my divorce was 100% preventable, right. completely preventable. There's plenty that was my fault, not all mine, but plenty that was. 
And I did the hard work, man. I went in, I dug in, I got the help I needed to figure out what I had been doing wrong to get myself right so that I could in turn be prepared and ready should there be another relationship in the, but even more than that, just to be better for me. Yeah. And because I did that, I took my pain, my pain became my purpose. I knew immediately when I was going through that, that I would have opportunities to help other men mm -hmm. because I remember what it was like going through all that and having worked through it, it was as if scales were lifted from my eyes and I could see clearly for the first time. And I can't begin to tell you the number of men that I could see were on the same train that I had been on and not realizing that in the distance, there was this huge chasm. There was a bridge there, but it had been blown up, but I didn't see it. Yeah. And I went crashing down because of it, because my train was going full force and was not stopping. Yeah. And I see that in the lives of other men all the time. And many times as men, we don't recognize it until it's too late. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I have to applaud you, John, because, you know, as a speaker too, you know, that's, we try to teach and help people um, learn from their experience. And there's an acronym I use called FASCO, Failures, and Oh, good. Yeah. Go with that. Yeah. yeah. Failures, adversities, setbacks, and challenges, and obstacles, and different words, um, different meanings. A lot of times they can mean the same, but just listening to you as maybe your pain or a failure on your part. I believe FASCO are some of the greatest mentoring moments for ourselves if we're willing to embrace the lesson. And I have to applaud you because you are willing to embrace the lesson, no matter how painful it was, that lesson that made you better. And, and look who you are now today, helping other people achieve and excel. And that's what, like you and I were talking about earlier, that's where the difference sometimes with people, some people aren't willing to, um, to be honest about where they fell or where the setback took place or what was the adversity? What role did you play? And for me, my whole life, I've always simply asked three simple questions when I dealt with any of those. Why did this happen? What can I learn from it? And how can I turn this into an opportunity? And that was the question I asked when I turned my ACL up. That was the question when I asked when four, three teams or four teams rejected me over a five day period. You know, so I really appreciate you sharing that because there's so many people out there they need to hear that and they need that guidance to help them understand these moments can make you better and willing to student. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of a person that I know fairly well. Uh, his name's Dan Miller. If you're familiar with Dan, Dan wrote the book called 48 Days to the Work You Love. Hmm. And one of the things that Dan is most well known to question, and that question is this, what does this make possible? And I, I really have taken a hold of that question and really have used that, especially when the difficult times come along, hmm. because... I have found that I don't always get an answer to the question why, but I can get an answer to that. What does this make possible? Mm -hmm. So it, some people will tell you, yeah, you know, you're just trying to put lipstick on a pig when you ask that kind of question, <laughs> or you're trying to have a super positive outlook on something that's really kind of negative. And I'm like, look, it's a revolutionary question if you let it, because yeah. it really can change your perspective. It's, it's kind of like if difficult things are happening to you in life. It's like, does it happen to you or for you? Right. And I couldn't say this when it first happened. I can say this today. My ex-wife did me a favor. She wanted the divorce. I didn't. But I don't know that I'd be where I am today if that had not happened. Right. So it was in a very large disguise. It was a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was thinking about when I was sitting there on the turf with my ACL tear and so much pain. I was like... <laughs> But it turned out to be a blessing because yeah. I didn't think I could play in the NFL 
But because of that injury, I got to sit on the IR with no pressure, just sit back there and learn and get my mind right. And that's when I, the switch went off and said, you know what? I can do this. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned something earlier, and this is something I like to ask people occasionally um, because it, some people say it's semantics. I actually think there's a difference. So I would like to know, first of all, do you think there's a difference between the words failing and failure? And if there is a difference, what is the difference? Good question. Failing and failure. Well, I think I would just, I think fail to me, failing is, it's like you're in the process of failing. You're in the process of not succeeding at doing something, you know, versus being a failure. It's almost that you're right about the semantics because that to me almost sounds like that person individually failed at something because they were either they were deficient at something or they didn't try or they didn't give an effort, you know? So I guess, it, like you said, I can see the difference between semantics because they're close, but they can be a little bit different. Yeah. The way I say it, JJ, is this. To me, failing is I tried something new, it didn't work, and I have an opportunity to learn. Right. That's failing. Failure, to me, is something completely different. It is a state of being. It is an active choice to stay stuck. Mm -hmm. And speaking as a coach here, I can't work with, I can't work with someone who chooses to stay stuck. Right. Yeah. But if somebody's willing to fail and learn from it, I can help that person all day long, yeah. twice on Sunday. Yeah. That's excellent. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Feel free to use it, please. Hey, that was good. I'll be writing that down. Oh, <laughs> please do. You know, I, I tell people all the time, it's like, you know what? I view myself. Well, let me back up. I have two lenses, JJ, that I use, that I view everything through in life. Um, I love God and I love people. I don't do anything that doesn't filter through those two. And I mean nothing. And so I view myself as a vessel, a conduit. So if anything comes to me, it didn't originate with me. So right. how dare I hang on to it? Like it's something special because of me, because it's not. So well, that's the beauty of life and, and even social media. We can learn from so many other people. And, and whether we know them or not, it's I'm constantly learning from other people and and people that don't even know that they're mentoring me, you know, but that's one of the ways we grow. That's one of the mm -hmm. ways we improve. That's one of the ways we get better. I mean, you sit there asking the question, what does this make possible? I wrote that down and I'm like, that's really good. That's a, I have a keynote where I kind of talk about the topic and I thought that's a really good way to phrase that, you know, so I filed it away and, you know, mm -hmm. just being here with you, I learned something new that I might be able to utilize in some of my presentation. So I appreciate that. Oh, you bet. You know, in fact, a question that I've started asking my kids is how did you fail today? Mm -hmm. Because, and, and I, I, I promise listeners and viewers, I will not go off on this like I have before. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go off on the education system in this country right now, mm -hmm. but it is failing our children. So it is an abject failure in my opinion. And I think it's because we're not setting our kids up for success. We're setting them up to be mindless drones who cannot think for themselves. The schools that are willing to invest in the kids in a way that's helpful, i.e. entrepreneurship, ways of leaning, I'm all for that. Let's get the kids thinking, working, getting that sort of thing going. But uh, that's why I ask my kids that. And they're very confused because, you know, they have this way of grading. You know, when you get an F, that's a bad thing. And now as an adult, looking back on it, being an entrepreneur for over 20 years, I'm like, failing is the best. That's the only way you learn. Right. You don't learn by doing it right. You learn by doing it wrong. I digress on that point. Good point, though. Good point. Let's talk about your book for just a minute. Now, remind me, when did that come out? It came out about five years ago. Okay. Uh, when Opportunity Knocks, Ace Your Fireways, 
take advantage. So what was the impetus for the book? Why write the book? Who is it? Yeah. First go, always wanted to be an author. Um, and I always wanted to figure out a way to start sharing content in my brain, you know, start sharing some of my experiences and the lessons. And about five years ago, maybe it was six, maybe five or six years ago, I went to a, um, a speaker training event that was hosted by Dr. Will Morland, well-known speaker here in Phoenix, some author of like 30 books or something like that. And I went to this seminar reluctantly. My buddy's like, oh, you got to come check out this guy. So I went and after listening to Dr. Will for three hours, I thought, okay, that guy's going to be my mentor. He's going to help me write a book and he's going to help me launch my speaking career. Cause I was already thinking about this stuff, but I needed a mentor. Yeah. So, um, started working with Dr. Will and, and we put the book together and what I wanted to create was a simple book that could appeal to everyone when it comes to helping them understand what it takes to seize your opportunities. Okay. Because obviously we all have opportunities. We have goals, we have dreams, we have things that we want to achieve. And that's what the book really revolves around. Just sharing some simple principles on how to do that. And uh, it was a great experience. And I love the experience because you always learn from doing something the first time, you know, right, and, right. And writing a book the first time was like, oh my goodness. But, um, I am definitely have the urge to write a second one Yay. and, um, and I'm hoping to do that, but I've had a, quite a few requests to make it an autobiography oh. because, because of my life and a lot of the lessons and experiences. And so I'm, I'm, I'm mulling that over to have a teaching <laughs> autobiography, but, um, but no, it was really cool to write that first book. And I tell you, being a speaker, it really helps because it adds a little bit more credibility to you as a speaker because you're considered an, an authority on this topic. And yeah. my number one keynote is seizing your opportunities. So um, it's been a, a nice compliment to speaking. Sure. By the way, I have ordered my copy. Oh, cool. Book. Yeah, I, I ordered it from jjburden.com. Awesome. Which is where you guys should be ordering the book from. Yeah, if you, if you want to get it other places, but order it directly from JJ. It's yeah, much better that way. That's right. If you fact, want the signature, that's, that's right. In fact, I will say this, and I, I do this with most of my guests who are off. If folks get far enough into this particular interview, then they deserve to at least hear this part. My offer to all of you out there the first one of you who listens to this with your phone takes a screenshot of you listening to this episode and you tag JJ and you tag me in it on my dime, I will purchase JJ's book, have him sign it and send it to you. Wow. That's like what I'll that. do. That's awesome. Yeah. In fact, this is just something that I do, JJ. Uh, when I buy books, now I haven't bought a second one from you yet. I will. Um, but typically when I buy books, I always buy two of them. I started doing that about four years ago because I am an avid reader. I read all the time. And... I get very excited when I read things and I share that. Well, typically people will ask me, what is it you're reading? Why are you excited about it? That sort of thing. And I'll share that and they want to read it. And so I'm just like, here, you know, read the book. Well, I was tired of not getting my book back, you know, and I don't want to be that guy that has to, you know, could you give me my book back? Now I don't have to be that guy. I can buy a copy for myself and one to give away. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I thought you were going to say for the reason why I sometimes will buy two books is because that first book, I will just destroy it from a, but I meant from like just notes everywhere, writing in it. And it's just like, you oh, yeah. know, and then, oh, I still do that, but yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. That's but good. to me, that's what makes books great is I can still do that. I can still physically write in it and, you know, I, not to get too neurosciency on everybody. I mean, there is something about the actual physical process of writing something yeah. down, your ability to retain it 
yeah. is much greater than if you just look at it. That's true. And and don't even get me started on, you know, reading books from like an Yeah, I don't do that. I, I'm a hard copy book reader. I just, I got to. I got to be able to write notes in there. I want something tangible I can hold and then come back to, and the pages are all folded and, you know, I love all of that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And let me be one to encourage you in your next book. Um, I would say, even though you've got people clamoring for you to write this autobiography, if you don't think that's what book number two needs to be, don't do that. Yeah. I'm not saying don't do the book. Right. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be number two in order for it to be done. Right. Just. You have to do what's what's right for JJ. Good tip. And you know what? I appreciate that because I first was going to write a different book. And then this, the autobiography one keeps coming up. And then in my mind, start, it comes up even more and more as I create content and share content on social media. And then, you know, in my keynotes. And I really feel I should write it. I really should. It's just. Oh, it'll help for sure. And let me just tell you. And, and, and here's, the, here's what I'm trying to decide. It's like. When you go that route, you got to decide what do you want to share? What do you don't want to share? Yes, that's very important. I don't want to get anyone in trouble and I'm not trying to get people mad at me. That's not the goal, you know? Right, so right. So I'm just kind of processing that right now. Well, you know? let me offer this because I mentioned before I had Tony on the show. Right. Tony Mandarich. Mm -hmm. um, when he wrote his book about the things that he went through, through right. his addiction, through painkillers and alcohol and, right. and all of that stuff that went into it. Um, and his time with steroids in college, he, the publisher was, they really wanted him to name the stuff. He didn't do it. In fact, just so you know, he's in Scottsdale. So it might be worth reaching out to Tony. Super. Oh yeah. my gosh. And he is an amazing photographer, but yeah, that's what I heard. Oh my gosh. He's really good. He's very, good. Cool. but, um, it might be worth a conversation with him. No. Especially since you guys are in the same town. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I might even read his book because I've been reading a few autobiographies, and so just to get a feel for how they, how they uh, put their their information together. So, mm -hmm. good. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening to Relationships and Revenue. I'd love to get your thoughts on the show. Two ways you can do that are to give us a rate and review, and or connect with me on social media. You can find me at John Hewlett. Thanks again for listening, and remember. Passion gets you started. Purpose keeps you going. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time. Bye.